Yeah. Got a mic? Oh, good. Find me. You're awesome, Marlon. You're amazing. Hey, who's here that was on the Casas build team? Come on up here. Come on up here. I see a couple of people right there. Come on up. Come on up. Anybody who's here? Who was here? Yep, you guys were there. I saw. I just saw Annika. The crows are here. I saw Brett Confer. They're here. Oh, you're making your way. Making your way. So, uh, 32 of us. This is the report. One thing Mike Akers helped me understand. It's like you can't. This is what I was the takeaway from that long conversation we had. The people can't celebrate what they don't know. Is that a good takeaway from what you said? That's what I thought. Look at all these people. Look how beautiful and amazing they are. They're incredible. So we took 32 people. We split into groups. That was fun, just the process of deciding who is in what group. And then we built two houses that were basically double shed size, but we poured a concrete pad. We built walls up from the inside. We put a metal roof on the top. We put stucco on the outside. We put drywall on the inside. We insulated the walls, put electricity in the whole thing, put doors and windows in it. And that happened in three and a half or four days. Can you believe that goes down? Isn't that amazing? It really is. Yeah. So if you ever need anything fixed on your house, take a look right there, these guys. But it was a great team and a great time. And uh, we had a whole bunch of Spanish speakers. So we had two very proficient Spanish speakers from our team on each job site. And then several of our younger children who are and children, young people who are learning Spanish here in the school systems. And so we had this great integrated time with both of the families. The families were amazing, were they not, that we went and integrated with and they were uh, they are now part of our story. And what we were able to do for sure for two families in Juarez, Mexico, we were able to change the trajectory of their life forever. We literally paid for and built them a home. And we were able to change their perception of Americans which, as you know, is a big deal right now. It is a big deal. And so that understanding, building some time, seeing each other, walking around in the central, getting to experience uh, the mercados, the people selling stuff, all the different things that we got to do, it was a pretty amazing, uh, amazing experience. I wanted you to be able to celebrate. It's because of Dillon Community Church, your investment, your giving, your prayer. How many people out here made dinners and breakfasts for us? Anybody in this room? Yeah. A few of you, let's give them a big hand. That's right. <laughs> the food was prepared, Ed. We brought it down. We warmed it up. It was an amazing experience. And you might be able to keep that on your radar screen for the future. We hope to be doing this about every other year. It's a 12-hour trip to the border. It's not that bad. We go down, we go across, and we build a couple of houses and come back. And it's a pretty ex amazing experience that we wanted you to be aware of. So pray with me for these people and for those people in Mexico. Lord, we come on behalf of this amazing, I've said amazing like 20 times this morning, and I know that. We, it's hard to express how impactful how much can happen in just a few days, not just physically with matter and dirt and concrete and wood, but what heart, what can happen inside people, uh, how love can and, uh, just engage 
and strengthen within a team, but also with people that we've never met before and may possibly never see again. But that, uh, that sense of community, that investment in each other. Thank you that we got to experience that as this team and that everyone here was part of that journey as we had vans that we could drive, we had tools we could use, so many things that this church has provided for that process. Help us to celebrate your work that was done in uh, hands, heads, and hearts. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let's clap again. Why not? <laughs> You're going to want to read the back of this. There's a lot of important stuff. The most important one is next Sunday... We start at the amphitheater. You're welcome to show up here if you'd like. You'll be by yourself. Next Sunday, we're at the amphitheater. So uh, there's a lot of details on here, a lot of stuff. Uh, don't forget Faith Day at the Rockies. If you haven't gone, it's uh, very, very fun. It's very enjoyable, and uh, it's worth going to. So read this through. There's all kinds of packed information in here that will help you navigate some of our summer activities and what's going on at the church because everything changes next week while we're at the amphitheater. It'll be a different experience. How many of you have been to the new amphitheater? So yeah, it looks different, doesn't it? It feels different. So we have a little bit of work ahead of us to sort out what that looks like. So uh, you're going to have to be able to take a joke the first couple of Sundays while we figure it out. Mark and I was down there Friday night. Mark was down there Saturday night. And we're looking going, mm, okay, how are we going to make this happen? But we'll figure it out. Okay, we are finishing a series about what does it mean to have a servant's heart? What does it mean for us as a church to have a servant's heart? Singular. Philippians 1.6. I am convinced of this very thing, one of the older translations says. He who began a good work in you... He began a good work, singular, and you, plural, will finish it. That's us. So we're going to finish this today. We started this whole discussion a long time ago, back at the beginning of the year, by talking about the fact that when uh, the glory left the temple of Israel and uh, Israel was deported, or Judah more technically was deported, into uh, the other nations, the glory left the temple, the exile began. God promised that would happen at the end of Deuteronomy, and it did. And all the prophets through all the years that God sent to both kingdoms said the reason is because of your sin. And so when they came back in the land 400 years or so before Christ, Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books capture that. When they come back into the land, the glory of the Lord did not return to the temple. So the exile had not formally ended. And the reason is because sin had not been forgiven. So when Jesus came, that was a whole study over uh, Lent and Easter. When Jesus came, what he accomplished on the cross was to finish that process to forgive sin. And so therefore the glory of the Lord returned. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the Lord returned, but it's no longer in the physical temple. It's now in the spiritual temple, which is the church. So the glory of the Lord returned. Exile has ended. And so what does that mean? If Jesus lived and died a very countercultural life and death, what does it mean for us to live a very countercultural life as a church, especially in Summit County? And for those of you that are visitors in your own home churches. So that's what we've been wrestling with in this study in Philippians.
So today we're going to talk about a, uh, a caring servant. That's how we're going to finish. The servant has several characteristics, and the last one in this last section is that we are very caring. So as we read this section, I want you to picture, uh, I want you to listen for the language of caring. There's a very deep, deep emotional connection that goes on in this section that uh, is worth talking about. It's worth paying attention to. You know, when you, if you, if you like reading mysteries or books or things like that, you, sometimes you have to get to the end of the book before everything gets tied together, right? Sometimes you don't know why somebody feels the way they do till the end. I, Nancy and I have reflected many times uh, when her mother passed away, she had Alzheimer's. And so we had the privilege, a uh, very, very terrible disease, but we had the privilege of walking with her daily for several years as she, as she went further and further into Alzheimer's. And the further back her memories went, the more we learned about her. It was a fascinating journey. I had the privilege of watching uh, Nancy quietly um, talk to her mom about faith toward the end and watching her mom embrace faith. But as she moved back in her memories, things began to surface that helped both of us understand why she was the way she was. And that's what's happening here with Paul. He's at the very end. It's so easy to skip this last section. But this last section reveals why he's been saying what he's been saying all along. And why his heart is drawn so much to this wonderful church. So what you're going to see, what you're going to hear, I hope, is just this deep language of caring. And this is what a church should be like. So the very first thing he's going to talk about is the hidden secret to joy. We've talked about rejoicing almost every week. We sang about it this morning. The word rejoicing occurs all throughout here. Judy, thank you very much for preaching last Sunday. Very heavily on, heavily emphasize, emphasizing joy. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. He says it all the way through the book. And so what is the real secret to joy? You know, suffering, we've said this before, suffering is the one language that the world understands. We share that language. So we shouldn't try to eliminate suffering. We should try to embrace suffering in a healthy way so that the, that the world can make sense because they understand suffering. They understand cancer. They understand divorce. They understand unfaithfulness. They understand all that. What they don't understand is how we as Christians can respond the way we do in the midst of it and why this is important. We've already talked about some of that. So Paul begins in verse 10. So we're going to read chapter, Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So picture this. Paul's been sitting in prison for a long period of time. Uh, they don't have email. Okay? No internet. Mail takes a long time to get around the empire. And so he's wondering about this church. So he's sitting in prison, probably in Asia Minor, we're not sure. And uh, maybe with a few friends, but wondering about this church. It's not until Epaphroditus comes that he begins to hear. So Paul is now rejoicing because he has heard that he was not forgotten by this wonderful church. They remembered him. Um, <clears throat> it's actually a statement, I think, about uh, what God takes Paul through, which he takes us through. So Paul is sitting in prison and he's wondering... He's wondering. You ever, you ever been in that situation where you, you wonder what friends think about you? Maybe I haven't heard from them in a while. I read a study by a, a psychologist that said that um, 
in today's, in the younger generation, if they haven't heard a, a text within 17 minutes, they feel like they're forgotten. Now, those of you that are older chuckle at that, but this is very real. Imagine walking into a room and all your friends are there and nobody says anything to you. How would you feel? And so if, the, if, if one of the primary ways we've taught our children to connect is electronically and they don't hear something within a certain time period, that's what they feel. That's worth remembering. It's worth remembering. I know that some of us that are older think, really, what's the deal? It's a real deal. It's a real deal. And so if they haven't heard, they typically broadcast something out to get feedback to make sure that they haven't been left in the dust. And so Paul's sitting here in prison with no sense of knowing. This is part of his testing. When you read between the lines on Paul's journey, what you find every step of the way is that God is doing with Paul what he's doing for us. And that is he's strengthening his faith. That's what he's doing every step of the way. So Paul had to wait some period of time. And that's why he says, uh, at last I have heard of your joy for me. So uh, the result of God's testing is that Paul had learned something very secret. Something that the world can't quite understand. Verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it means uh, to be in need. I know what it means to have plenty. Paul probably came from an upper or wealthy family. He would not have been a disciple of Gamaliel, one of the top rabbis ever in the history of Israel, if he didn't come from a wealthy family. So he says, I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So the result of Paul's testing in jail, by the way, if you lay out his entire life, he spent a large chunk of his life, his Christian life, in jail. One of the things I have my students do is map out all the passages of where he's traveling through rough territory on uh, mission trips or his journeys and then the times he spent in jail. What you find is about 95% of his life was either in hardship traveling, getting beat, sharing the gospel, or in jail getting beat. And so his life was one long period of testing. And what he has learned, the secret, is contentment. Now, the philosophers of Paul's day have much to say about contentment. This is very, a very common topic. Uh, this, is how we, we, this is how they tried to get people to feel good about things. And we might look at it as our positive self-help uh, things for today. The Stoics were especially good at this. For example, Marcus Aurelius, born A.D. 121, so this is after Paul, um, he was a Roman emperor and a Stoic philosopher. He describes his adoptive father as the ideal Stoic man. And he says he is self-sufficient in all things. So contentment at this time of the world was described in terms of being self-sufficient. If you have all the resources you need, of course you could be content. Or so the myth goes. All right? 
Similarly, Seneca, who is a Roman statesman born in 4 BC, so he's a little, he was just slightly before Paul's time, he claimed that whereas a man might want friends, he didn't need them. He didn't need friends. You know why? Because ultimately he was self-sufficient. That was a sign of a mature person, a contented person. I like being with you, but I don't need you. I had, some, I had a wife come to me one time and say, I'm trying to learn what it means to love my husband well. And so I'm, I'm working on all I need is Jesus. Oh. So she said, so what do you think about that? I said, well, I come home, let's say we're married. I come home and I say, guess what? I don't need you anymore. All I need is Jesus. How are you going to feel? Not very good. I said, I don't even wonder who the author is. The moment God said it's not good for the man to be alone, he just told us that he made us so that he's not enough. We need each other. Self-sufficiency is not the mark of contentment. Unlike the stoic philosophers of Paul's day, he does not locate contentment within himself, his economic situation, and his own abilities. That's not where contentment lies. And this is the secret he's getting to in this final passage. He is grateful for their gifts, and he says that. But while he's grateful for the gifts, he does not want them to think that the physical comfort that their gifts have brought has increased hope with the difficulties at hand. You guys have all been through stressful situations. Some of you have had cancer. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have had unfaithful partners. Excuse me, the list goes on and on. And you know what? Uh, contentment in the middle of that journey is really tough, isn't it? It's really tough. We just sat with good friends yesterday. We were down in Denver. And uh, his nephew, a couple months ago, was uh, doing some athletic event, and his, his knee was hurting him, so he went to the doctor, found out he had bone cancer, and he happened to die yesterday while we were together. Okay, he's 29 years old. And so we sat together while our friends cried, and uh, learning contentment in the middle, what an abrupt, abrupt thing to have happen. And some of you have been there. You understand this journey really well, what Paul's talking about here. This is a secret that he's getting to, is that all this, the stuff they've brought him, he enjoys it, but that's not what allowed him to express contentment. He has learned to be content with plenty or want. Why? The hidden secret that distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world is very simple. We find contentment in Christ. In other words, we have a growing confidence that God really cares about us. I meet with several young guys uh, for breakfast every other week. We're talking about Matthew 7. You don't have because you don't ask. Um, If you just ask, you can have confidence that God will answer your prayer. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on and said, how many of you, uh, being a good father, he's, he's talking to the men, if your son asked for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? And so we got into this discussion about prayer. And I said, what's the obstacle on prayer? When you pray before the Lord, how, how high is your confidence level that he's going to answer it? So they gave me the standard answer, which I've heard my whole Christian life, which I reject. God sometimes says yes, God sometimes says no, and God sometimes says maybe. That's a lot like I'm trying to learn to just trust the Lord only. I don't need my spouse. I said, don't you think that? I said, absolutely not. I think the answer is always yes. 
Always. What I don't know is how. And so walking into confidence with the Lord is not an exercise in entitlement. That's not it at all. It's an exercise that I actually believe the Lord is going to engage me through that prayer. I just don't know how. So I think the answer is yes. And it may look completely different than when I pray. So I give God latitude. I don't have an entitled heart that he has to do it the way I pray. And if you've listened carefully to my prayers over the years up here, Don, when we prayed for you, at the end, when God answered our prayer, as you were walking along that cliff near death at one point, that's how I looked at it with cancer. And when he answered the prayer and the cancer went away, I prayed, God, thanks for answering the prayer the way we prayed it. I don't know how God's going to answer the prayer. But I don't believe in no or maybe. I believe the answer is always yes. I just have to give him latitude. And I could give you story after story of that. That's how much confidence I have that when I pray, God is actually going to engage me in the process and take me on a journey, maybe a different journey than I thought. But I'm not alone and he has not abandoned me. And I think that's part of this whole thing. I've learned to do this because I can do all of this that he's talking about through him. And what is he talking about this whole book? He's been in prison. He's being beat. He's on trial. I can do all of this because I have confidence in Jesus. There's absolutely nothing that can happen to you. Nothing. Without God's very precise approval and will. If God lifted his care for you for one second, so what we learned from Job, you would be in deep trouble. So every second of every day, we stand under God's protection. Do you have that kind of confidence? The problem is not the Lord that we serve. The problem is our perception. That's the problem. We serve the risen Lord Jesus and we can trust him. And that's what he's saying. I can do all of this, everything I've been through in this book, because he gives me strength. That's why I've asked several of you in the beginning of your journeys of challenge, when you tell me something's happened, is your faith strong enough to walk this road? How can I help you with your faith? I can't do anything about the medical situation. I don't have the ability to convict your partner if they're unfaithful. I don't have that power. But what I can do is encourage and help you with your faith. Is your faith strong enough to walk the road? That's what Paul's talking about here. Living out this kind of faith is possible because we have a strong community. And that's where he heads next in verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. That's a common common term in the ancient world for finances, okay? And finances, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So he's now telling us why he's rejoicing so deeply at this wonderful church. He just loves them. His love for them is just overflowing. They're walking together with him in his troubles. We've talked about the word koinonia. Okay, this is the root word for this word. Mark's talked about it. I think Judy talked about it. I've talked about it. 
koinonia, having things in common where we're not alone on the journey. They were with him from the very beginning, from the time they heard the gospel. They walked the road with him. From the very first, they immediately put their money where their mouth is, at the very beginning. Is that the kind of church we have here? Are you walking with other people? Do you feel alone? By the way, uh, and I'm going to say it again a little bit later, after, after church today, we're talking about gre- greeters. Greeters are some of the most important people in our church. And uh, we need some. And I would like all of you who are greeters to come and those of you who have been greeters in the past to come because I want to lay out some of the challenges we're facing and what we want to do to solve some of these problems. Because uh, I sit with new people all the time. All you have to do is fill out your, the, this right here. It says in there, if you want to have coffee with me, um, text me or let me know and I'll have coffee. And I listen to new people all the time. And I know I get the feedback. And one of the things I hear is I often feel very alone. We're a very friendly church, but we're not necessarily an engaging church. And I want to talk about how to cross that threshold and get to the next level of engagement. So when a visitor comes, they feel a little more welcomed. So I'd like to invite you all to come. So who are you walking with? They were the only church that stayed with him financially when he went to Macedonia. Acts 16 records him going to Philippi. Uh, That's where they were thrown in prison and beaten and all that. And uh, they took care of him, the Philippians. This young church took care of him. Remember we said when you're in prison, back in this day, they didn't feed you. Uh, You're on your own. If you don't have friends to take care of you, well, sorry, you're just going to die. So this church took care of him. He went from there to Thessalonica. That's where Jason was. And the Jews followed. Some of the Jews who were very hardcore followed. And they tried to find Paul and Silas. They couldn't find him. So they beat Jason up. That makes a lot of sense to me. I don't like Mark, so I beat up Rob. (laughs) Right? He, He has all kinds of problems. And they took care of him there, too. They kept sending him money, and now he's in prison again, and they're still caring for him. Uh, this, is, this is a statement of what authentic community looks like, where we run to each other's aid. I've said many times, hear it with the right, with the right heart. It doesn't matter to me what the sin is that you struggle with. What matters is you care enough to talk about it. And I want to run alongside of you and walk on that journey with you. Our staff, our elders, all of us. This is a statement of authentic community, I think. Um, By the way, this is similar to how our staff feels. What Paul's expressing here. I can't express to you how grateful we are that you're a generous church. You keep us financially sound. I mean, at a very practical level, you pay our salaries. Thank you for that. But even far beyond that, you make it possible to do the things that we have committed our life to doing, serving Christ alongside of you. We are deeply grateful. This is how our missionaries feel around the world. They're very grateful that we as a church are generous and we help them. Um, If you're not supporting any Christian ministry, I'd like to invite you to do it, whether it's with us or somebody else. Because you'll begin to experience joy you have not experienced before when you start giving it away and watching the fruit of it. Paul goes on in teen and talks about a healthy community, what it means to have good priorities. So in verse 17, Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that 
uh, more be credited to your account. So he switched back to this accounting language. I have received full payment. I love that word. That's a technical term in the first century. It's giving a receipt for somebody that's paid for it. He's giving them a receipt. I have received full payment from you and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He once again clarifies that while he appreciates their gifts, that's not his real priority. His priority is their reward because of their faithfulness. That's the real priority. I think one of the greatest joys of being a pastor is why I just love it and the reward that comes from it. By the way, this is especially important at this time because the church is now beginning to blossom and uh, teachers were popping up and charging for their teaching. It became a means of money making. Oh, we kind of have that problem today, don't we? Some things never change. And so he's talking about how richly he has been blessed by them. This language of full payment saying, I have received this from you and I give you a receipt that... uh, Uh, for your faithfulness. They have more than met their obligation and he's overflowing with joy because of it. We've said several times, if one of you is in need and the people around you have the means of taking care of it and they don't, joy is not the fruit. Division is. On the other side of that, if the people around you have the means to help you and they step in eagerly, joyfully, generously, overflowing, natu- uh, joy naturally overflows. You can't stop it. And that's what he's talking about here with this receipt. He then uses language from the Old Testament to show that God is very delighted in what they're doing in their giving. Very delighted. All throughout the Mosaic Law, you have this language of uh, of sacrifice being expressed in fragrance of a pleasing aroma to God. It's all throughout the law. How much God loves it. We learn later on that what he loves is the heart that goes with it. Because he later on says, uh, sacrifice without, without a heart. That's not what I'm interested in. So what's behind it is not simply putting money in the plate, for example. It's really rejoicing. That's what's really behind it. Paul closes his letter with praise and encouragement. Verse 20. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. What really gladdens God's heart, what really makes him smile, is a very generous spirit that flows from a caring and loving heart. That's what makes him smile. I teach a class at Denver Seminary on financial stewardship where we talk about this. Uh, Caring precedes generosity. If you're like everybody else in America, 
if you feel cared for and loved, generosity naturally follows. And that's what he's talking about here. And he expresses what should be all of our prayer, that God would glorify himself through us. That's how he chooses to do it, that God would glorify himself. Then he goes on and says, greet all of God's people. Uh, The NIV here, I'm not quite sure why they translated it that way. Because uh, the word all and the word God's people, which is the word for saint, are both in the singular, which Paul never does. This is very unusual for Paul. Paul usually goes through and identifies people when he's finishing. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. And what he's saying here is greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He's going back to the the whole theme of unity and rejoicing, what healthy community looks like. Tell every saint of my love for them. Every saint. It's a very powerful picture. Uh, By the way, this is why when we do communion, I mean when we do offering, which we're about to do, I say to you, thank you. Thank you for your generosity. I mean that. around the country that struggle their churches struggle financially and that's not a problem I've ever had to struggle with here and it's because of you it's not because of me it's because of your your generous heart to care to care for our mission and what we're doing finally he says pray for God's grace to be evident in their lives and just a little tiny one more little secret thing pops out the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Spirit is singular. Yours is plural. Your. Your collective spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit as Dillon Community Church. What's that spirit? What should it be? What did we sing that everybody just clapped? I will rejoice. Right? Thanks for singing that. I will rejoice. That should be the spirit of all of us that he's talking about. Okay. Just a couple of quick thoughts and we'll finish. Listen to the journey where we've come. Genesis in Philippians 1. A servant is one who is on the journey with Christ, with Jesus. Second half of Philippians 1. We looked at what does it make, what does it mean that we are worthy to be citizens? Those who are faithful, those who are fulfilling the mission of God, those who work at living appropriately, those are the qualities of ones who is faithful to be called a servant. And that is what you are. That's not a statement of what you need to do, it's a statement of what God is already doing in you. DCC, this describes you. I love this church. You are faithful. You are working to fulfill the mission of God. I love the private conversations that I have with you about some of you that are talking to your neighbors and friends. You're working at living appropriately. I love the conversations where you come to me and say, I'm in sin. Yes. You finally admitted it. (laughs) Because it's true of all of us. It's true of all of us. You haven't lived. Somebody sits across from you in a coffee shop and says, I'm sleeping with another woman and my life is a mess. Now we're talking the language of redemption. 
That's why Christ did. Then the next Sunday, we then looked at Jesus as the key example of servanthood. He sacrificed everything for us out of a deep love and compassion. That's what we are like. He is the model for us to emulate. We went from there to being a servant means learning how to leave the past behind and live into the future, not placing so much stock in our accomplishments. but understanding what the Lord is doing. Last week, we saw the importance of rejoicing as a quality to bring into our lives. It should describe us. That's one of the character qualities that, that draws the world. And then finally today, it's about caring. It's about caring. Being a serving church, I've finished every sermon this way. Being a serving church, a caring church, a loving church takes work, discipline, intentionality. Are we together moving in that direction? Or are we a bunch of churchgoers? What do you want to be? A church who works really hard? Because it does take a lot of work. And honestly, you have to entrust yourself to the Lord. And that's not always fun. It's always rewarding. But it's not always fun. Father, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful church, Philippi. They had learned how to love you. Paul had learned the secret, and he's able to, to have that conversation with them. We can do all things because of who you are, not because of who we are. Thank you for being that kind of God. We are grateful. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to